0: I'm Grant Haver. I'm Zoe Weinberg. And this is Next in Foreign Policy, the podcast where the next generation of national security and foreign policy leaders talk about the issues of today and tomorrow. This week, we're joined by Philippe Nassif. Philippe is the Advocacy Director for the Middle East and North Africa at Amnesty International, where he focuses on ensuring U.S. policy prioritizes human rights across the region. Philippe has been widely recognized as a young leader and was named one of the top lobbyists in 2019 and 2020 by The Hill due to his human rights work. Philippe, thanks for joining us. Great to be here. Thank you both.
1: Philippe, how did you originally become interested in this work?
2: Basically, I was born in New Orleans and between New Orleans and Houston, spent most of my life down on the Gulf Coast. But my father immigrated from Lebanon uh, and my mother from Mexico, and they both met at LSU. So for any Tigers who are listening, uh, I'm sure they'd be happy to hear that there's one that works on foreign policy in D.C. But they met at LSU in Baton Rouge and um, ended up basically starting their family in Louisiana. And I, from a very young age, heard a lot of stories about Lebanon because this was in the mid-80s um, and the war in Lebanon had been raging for years. and you know, my grandmother who would live with us and the rest of my dad's family who had been slowly leaving Lebanon and resettling in the New Orleans area. Some were traumatized from the conflict. Some shared stories of the horrors that were happening back home. And I grew up hearing these stories. So fast forward to my first trip to Lebanon in the mid nineties as a pretty young boy. I remember driving through Beirut after landing in the airport to go to my uncle's house who lives um, north of Beirut in the mountains. And we drove through downtown Beirut and we saw it was like a moonscape. I mean, there were bullets just completely covering entire facades of buildings, like seven stories high, a uh, block after block after block. And this is already after some of the rebuilding had started. This is like in 1994. So there had been about four years since the war had ended. And so I was sitting in the car with my grandmother and I turned to her. And I, cause I didn't understand what I was seeing really. I didn't get that this is what war did or looked like. I'd heard of it, but I didn't understand it. And I asked her what happened. Uh, and she said, she didn't say, she didn't say anything. And then I said, who did this? And she said, we did this. And that sort of stuck with me because I didn't really comprehend what people are capable of doing to each other. And you had this beautiful city that was, I mean, left in absolute ruins because of this conflict that pitted the people of this country and the people that called that city home against each other. After having that experience, kind of wanting to make some sort of an impact on the world and prevent things like that from happening to other countries or to happening in Lebanon again. Uh, and it kind of propelled me into foreign policy. And, you know, I'm a multicultural kid that sort of had to balance out all these dueling identities, you know, in my life. And, I think all of that sort of came together in like a career in international studies that started in college, you know, studying these issues and just ended up looking for, for work in the nation's capital. So anyway, that's how I sort of came here uh, and came about into the foreign policy world.
1: Sometimes I feel like there is a certain amount of friction between the national security world and the human rights world. And you've moved between both of those spaces a lot in your career. And I'm wondering whether or not you have similarly sometimes felt a tension between the the sort of approach and values and thinking behind uh, those two fields and how you've reconciled that.
2: Yeah. You know, I, I spent a lot of my time having to sort of reconcile the national security space and the human rights space. So the foreign policy space and human rights space, because they are two different things, but they should be and are interrelated and interdependent. I was actually just talking to a colleague of mine who works on Afghanistan. It's sort of this very issue of we, the United States, spends a whole bunch of time in a place and has this sort of military presence that is quite significant uh, and at great cost financially and obviously with U.S. personnel lives uh, and Afghan lives, right? And you have all of these people, these human rights activists, Afghans, these are Afghan nationals mm-hmm. uh, that are working so hard to change their country. And it, it reminds me of the same hopeful people that you have on the ground in Iraq, in Egypt, in all of the countries that I work on. And it's kind of the same sad story of the United States looking at these countries and applying this logic that is short term and narrow, where we want to in the case of Afghanistan, end a foreign engagement and bring our troops home, which is great, but fail to comprehend the scale and the magnitude of the effects that will follow on the people of Afghanistan, on all the people that have relied on the United States presence to try to build their country into one that is a little bit more inclusive and cohesive and accepting of women and all of these sorts of things that you have seen, And so these people end up In trouble. And trouble means death in many cases in these countries. And so here I am sitting here, and it's the same story that's repeated itself over and over again. It's repeating itself in Egypt with the new arms sales that have been greenlit by the Biden administration, you know, and it's like, what about the tens of thousands of people in jail in Egypt right now that we've been trying to get released? What about all of the Libyans that are in jail? I mean, these are the kinds of things that you have to sort of balance out when you're talking to the U.S. government, where I understand that there are certain national security objectives, but human rights should be a part and is a part of those objectives as well. Yet it's the first one to kind of get lopped off because it takes a little bit more time and effort to safeguard and ensure that these conditions are
0: existing in these countries. And that's work, right? And sometimes people just don't want to do that. Let's dig into that Egypt example. The president just greenlit additional military aid. You wrote in Just Security in July that the Biden administration needed to reset our relationship with Egypt. Given where we are now, what can we do to ensure and protect human rights in Egypt?
2: I call this sort of the Khashoggi effect. And here's why I call it that. When President Biden talked a big game, about making Saudi Arabia a pariah state on the campaign trail. I don't know if y'all remember that when it happened, but it was something that was sort of a big deal. And I think it was really like a foot and mouth situation because I don't really think he intended to actually make Saudi Arabia a pariah state. I don't think that was like a policy that any of his foreign policy advisors at the time were actually planning on doing or wanting to implement. I think they wanted to hold Saudi Arabia accountable. That's a very different thing. In any case, he said that. And so you have people in the advocacy community and human rights activists like myself who are like, oh, wow, that's a big deal. Okay. It must mean something on Khashoggi. It must mean something on arms sales to Yemen and signaling how he will handle Egypt. And President Sisi, who is one of the worst human rights abusers across the Middle East and North Africa, and in fact, one of the worst on the planet. And that's, that's a big statement because this is not a world that's got a lot of great people running things right now. So you, you have this situation. Where the president gets elected, we have President Biden, and he fails, hundred percent fails to hold the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia accountable for the killing of Jamal Khashoggi, or even people in the inner circle in the kingdom. That had a chilling effect on on everything in the region because all of the other actors, especially President Sisi, was looking to see if the United States president was going to, on the world stage, hold. Something that everybody knew was greenlit by a certain someone, if he's going to call them out and met some sort of punishment, even if it may be symbolic, that he was at least going to verbalize it and say that this happened and it was wrong and there will be consequences. He did not do that. What's happened is that it sent a green light for most of the Middle Eastern autocrats who have flourished under the previous administration of President Trump, flourished to continue the crackdowns that they already started. After the Arab Spring, okay, so even before Trump was elected, and they were just they just grew in ferocity during the Trump administration. And Egypt is one of those places where you've got almost three hundred million dollars. So this is what we call FMFs, or foreign military financing, that was supposed to be uh, for the Egyptian military, and you had that particular bucket of money frozen by the previous administration, the Trump administration, and now Biden, President Biden, today essentially released. $170 170 million and withheld them. Remaining 130 million. That 130 million is a fraction of the whole, as you all are hearing me explain. The 300 million that was released—that's little to nothing. Because what that means is, it's telling President CC, you've been really badly behaved. In fact, so badly behaved that even Trump had to do something about it. You haven't changed any of your behavior. You haven't released any of the political prisoners we've asked to release. There's been no justice for the hundreds of people killed in the Rabah Square massacre almost a decade ago. All I mean, I can go down the list of all the things that have happened that we work on in Amnesty in Egypt. None of those things have been met or done by the Egyptians or even addressed. And yet they're still getting this money and they're still getting these arms sales and they're still getting the support from the United States. So we came out today, Amnesty International, Project on Middle East Democracy or POMED, Human Rights Watch, a slew of organizations saying, this is ridiculous. If human rights is front and center in the foreign policy of this presidency, which has been articulated to some degree by the president himself and his advisors, this is another stain on our foreign policy where it was a missed opportunity where we could have articulated some level of punishment for the Egyptian government's actions and we failed to do so. And so that's that's the latest mess that we've had to deal with as of today.
1: I want to shift gears to the situation in Iraq. There have been very active protests in Iraq that began back in 2019 by activists who were protesting corruption, unemployment, inadequate public services, and so on. And they're they're pushing for major political reforms. And some some groups have said that they're boycotting the upcoming election. From where you sit, what do you see as the current situation in Iraq? And are you hopeful that the protests will lead to reform?
2: This is an interesting thing to talk about because you have a country that has seen unbelievable levels of violence now for years, most recently with the Daesh or ISIS taking over you know, swaths of the country and a genocide of Christians and Yazidis and frankly, tens of thousands of other Iraqis. I mean, terrible stuff happened in 2014, 2015, 2016. Then you had this protest movement erupted. So there's a second Arab Spring that's been the focus of my work until COVID hit and it sort of picked up again, where you have protests break out in Iraq and in Lebanon and Algeria was one of the big, big ones in Libya to a smaller degree. And you, you had these movements that were essentially calling for the exact same things the Arab Spring called for in Tunisia and in Egypt uh, and in Syria, which totally became a bloodbath. And you have Iraq that sort of had its own civil war still going on during the Arab Spring and then the ISIS takeover and everything. And so they kind of like caught up to the party, so to speak. And you had all of the youth in the country wake up and say, we've been through what? Almost two decades of conflict here. We have nothing really great to show for. We have no future. We have no economy. The economy is, the economy is a disaster. We have a political elite or a ruling class that is completely corrupt. And has robbed us of our future. We're protesting, and you had this incredible thing where, like Iraqis of all faiths, took to the streets. A lot of very young Iraqis, and one by one, they were felled by snipers. Snipers on the rooftops in Baghdad, in Erbil, in Basra, especially in in, in the center and the south of the country. And we documented at least seven hundred people who were killed. Seven hundred in about a year just protesting, who were killed by snipers and literally gunmen just coming up and shooting groups of people. And this was happening all through 2019, right around the same time the Lebanon revolution happened. You know, It's October 2019, November, December, January 2020, 2021, then the pandemic there, right? And everybody sort of forgot about this stuff. But there were months of sustained protests and demonstrations in Iraq that were really unprecedented. And they've picked up again, on and off, but they've picked up again. And it's really interesting to see how that sort of put the political figures in the country on notice, that people are no longer just focused on the rivalry between the United States and Iran, or like Saudi Arabia and Iran, all of these sort of geopolitical things you hear about in the news, but actually very basic access to water, access to electricity, education, you know, all of the things that people care about. And they were asking for these same things. And this was an organic movement, an Iraqi movement, just like it was an organic movement in Lebanon, an organic movement in Algeria, This was not Western encouraged. This was not Eastern encouraged, this was organic. And that fight is continuing right now. So when you ask me about Iraq, I can say, I don't know what's going to happen. I can just tell you that people have woken up in a sense that the spirit of the airspace is not dead. It's very much alive. It's just sort of in a state of limbo across the region. And I think Iraq is a great example of that.
1: This is, you know, especially interesting to me because, like, as I think, you know, I spent several months in 2017 living in northern Iraq, working on the emergency response in Mosul. And even then, you know, I think the, well, the role of the U.S. at that point was, was obviously focused on counter-ISIL. Operations, but you just said that all of these protests are are sort of organic. What has been either the U.S. response or role? Where does the U.S. sort of play into this movement?
0: Well, I
2: think that the United States right now has sort of, I mean, you know, we were talking under the Trump administration; they weren't really saying anything about safeguarding the lives of these protesters. There was no investigations being led by the Iraqi government. You have one Iraqi government collapse, another one come up because of the protests there's been little movement on finding out who has been doing all the killing. There's been a string of assassinations of protest leaders and civil society activists in Iraq. We've met with the State Department, we've met with Capitol Hill, we've met with the White House recently, encouraging them, in fact, urging them to take a tough stance when it comes to how they're talking to the Iraqi government to push them. Okay, this is another country that gets assistance from the United States. It's so another country, we had a big military footprint for a very long time. They listened to us. They talked to the United States. They also talked to Iran. And Iran has been behind a lot of the killings of these protesters, or at least Iranian-backed militias have been behind a lot of the killing of these protesters and abductions. But But at the, at the end of the day, the United States has the ability to, at the very least, influence how the Iraqi government is going to approach this kind of bad behavior, whether it's been committed by their forces or committed by rogue elements in the country. And that's our focus right now. I just want them, I want the United States government to really articulate that this is important for U.S. policy towards Iraq, that the killing of the protesters, the assassination stops, and, and that there's accountability, that the government can demonstrate has the ability to find people who've done bad things and hold them accountable, because that's what, at the very basic level, a government should be able to do. I think that's in the United States' interest, I think it's in Iraq's interest, certainly the Iraqis' interests.
0: and we're kind of waiting to see how that engagement shakes out. I don't mean to sound super pessimistic here, but it seems to me that the you United States exactly has had- worse ca- than, You can't be worse than us human rights folks these days, so <laughs> go ahead. Um, It seems to me that the United States has really failed to effectively be able to change how nation states interact with their citizenry, whether that's in Afghanistan, where we were physically there and just left and it completely fell apart, or China or Russia or even NATO partners like Hungary and Turkey. What are the chances that if the U.S. actually wants to support the protesters, that we can get movement from the Iraqi government? So I think the chances are low, but they're not nil. And I
2: think that they were nil not that long ago. Okay. And here's why. I think that when you look at the investments that are being made by the United States in like training foreign militaries or foreign police departments or, um, or internal security forces, and I'm thinking Lebanon, for example, where there's been a lot of money from the US that's gone towards the training of these. You see the difference that it makes. You see that the number of protesters that have been killed in Lebanon is less than a dozen, or maybe maybe it's just surpassed a dozen, but it, it is, at, is at a much, much, much lower number than what you've seen in Iraq and what you've seen certainly in Egypt and in other places. And the reason for that is that some of the training has like a human rights focus and like crowd control, riot control training, and things that we're not necessarily requiring the Egyptian government to do when they're receiving money from us, right? Because we're looking at it, we're looking at Egypt from more of like an anti-terrorism lens and a different lens in like Lebanon, where the Nazis tried to shape the trajectory of the country for the future and, and pull it into its orbit. So I think it's the application of what the U.S. wants long term. That impacts how the citizenry are treated by their own governments. And I think that's where, I think that's where I have more optimism for some of the countries where the U S has more of a um, soft power approach on training and education and accountability and legal training. Okay. Building the court systems up for some of these countries. So they're fair and so that they work and are independent of the political apparatus versus the anti terrorism, national security lens of things where the United States looks at Saudi Arabia in that regard and Egypt in that regard uh, and and other countries. And that's where there happens to be some of the most abuses. And so I think it just goes to show there's, you know, I think that when the United States is asking for something and requiring these countries of something, when they're getting this kind of assistance, it changes their behavior. And it's not going to be perfect. It is not going to be perfect. I'm not aiming for perfect here. I'm aiming for some sort of a standard that gets us to perfect a decade from now or two decades from now. I'm not taking us backwards, right? I actually am optimistic that when the United States says these things are important, here is the assistance you're getting from us. It's not supposed to be used to kill protesters directly or indirectly. The court systems that we help you build and fund and the French have helped with and the British and all of these other countries are supposed to be functioning in this way. And if you can't do this in a year from now, You're going to have other issues, right? These are the simple messages that are just not being conveyed.
0: The driving force behind President Biden's foreign policy is supposed to be this foreign policy for the middle class. And I fear that one of the things that this has revealed is that the preference of Americans is to actually disengage, especially from the Middle East use drones as necessary to keep insurgents down and basically lose our moral responsibility to help with human rights. How would you talk to the average voter about why we need to hold Iraq accountable for the lives of these protesters or Egypt accountable rather than focus on the national security issue that counterterrorism. Yeah, so here's what I would say.
2: And here's what I do say when I'm talking to people around the country, so like outside the Beltway on these issues. I say that the national security approach is totally valid and it's an approach that shouldn't just disappear at the expense of something else. But nor should the human rights people-focused approach disappear at the expense of anything else and we just seem to seesaw back and forth between these two sort of extremes and it's like the oldest tale in u.s foreign policy right but it's still happening and it seems to be happening not in more frequency but it, but it, almost more clearly in the sense that like you have these visceral images of a baby being handed over a gate in Kabul you know to a US marine or of these civil society activists that have tried so hard for so long and survived ISIS and everything only to get shot by some random person, we don't know who did it, in Baghdad because they wanted clean water. Okay, so the United States wants to leave its foreign military engagement in the Middle East and North Africa. That's fine. That's great. At the same time, there are all of these people that have, throughout the years of us and other countries. In trying to sort of build up the legal systems, build up the security forces, build up democracy and democratic initiatives in these countries that shouldn't be entirely abandoned. And what's happening is that when the United States is still talking to these countries, whether we were engaged with them militarily or not, they're not talking the human rights game anymore. The human rights stuff is thrown out the window first when the United States is withdrawing from a place because People in this country don't think that we could really fix a human rights situation in some of these countries. And the Iraqis on the street, the 700 kids that were killed, they seem to think otherwise. That's my point. They actually seem to think that they didn't really need the United States. They're doing this on their own. Whether they learned that from us or not, it's beside the point. I hardly think that we invented the form of protest. It's been around for a long time. But these people, they took action. And they tried to take the future of their country in their hands, which is something that President Biden has said that he wanted Afghans to do. And presidents, countless times before, said they wanted this country to do it and that country to do. These kids did it. And we can't even articulate to the government that is there right now to figure out who killed all these people and bring them to justice. That's, that's what I'm talking about. And so I tell people across the country, these are two different questions, Okay. It's like, you know, making me choose between a quesadilla and a taco. And I'm like, well, they're both really good. And I would like one of each. Do I have to pick? <laughs> it's just sort of like, what if I want one of each? It doesn't make any sense. This is not something that has to be one or the other. And we're constantly almost engineering the options as if it's one or the other. And it's not. It isn't. And I think that is my that you can hear the frustration in my voice because that's. What we're seeing happening in Afghanistan, but I already saw that happen in Iraq, and I've seen that happen in a whole bunch of other countries in the Middle East and North Africa. And I'm worried that it's becoming the normal. I'm worried this is how we behave now, uh, and that's not good.
1: I want to talk a little bit about the role of technology, both in jeopardizing human rights and also in advancing them. You know, I think we all know plenty of examples of authoritarian regimes that have used digital tools to conduct targeted surveillance, censor their populations and so forth. And yet at the same time, technology is also being harnessed by human rights activists proactively, you know, via secure messaging tools or to document incidences of human rights abuses. In the course of your work, I'm sure you come up against technology in both of those uses. So would love to hear your thoughts about balancing both the sort of risks and opportunities that new technological tools are presenting?
2: I wouldn't say it's a new frontier. It's, it's the frontier now. It's what we're, what we're firmly in. It's the world of technology and you've got spyware and tracking malware that has been sent through WhatsApp and like people have inadvertently downloaded onto their phones. You've got the Pegasus NSO software. It was initially developed by an Israeli company and kind of sold off to another company. And this was a spyware that was bought by the likes of the Moroccan, the Kingdom of Morocco, the kingdom of Saudi Arabia, and a slew of other countries, uh, Mexico, I think. This was in a big groundbreaking report that Amnesty put out a few months ago on the NSO spyware, and this was this was in part the technology that was used to track Jamal Khashoggi's movements, okay? So again, I get back to the Khashoggi example uh, I was w- sort of one of the first high profile killings where. This type of technology was used apparently from very early on to sort of track his movements and where he's going to be, et cetera, et cetera. And this stuff was sent by supposedly by the Saudi authorities to a slew of activists that were outside of their outside of the kingdom. These are not people that live in Saudi Arabia, they're outside the kingdom. So you have a situation where the human rights communities had to sort of step in and talk about how we handle the sale of this kind of technology to countries. And so we're approaching it from the same way we approach arms sales. So it's not just about how we sell tanks and precision-guided munitions, but also how our companies that develop this technology sell to foreign government. That's a little bit harder to regulate, right? That you can see where this is going. because It's becoming government stepping into the private sector, and the private sector's generation of this technology, create, they have these creations of this technology and these apps and this software, for sale to other entities and so what we're trying to do is encourage the companies that have any kind of technology that can be manipulated to track people not to in fact sell this technology to countries that are serial human rights abusers so the most obvious human rights abusers that we know the same way that we don't like selling weaponry to these countries it's a little bit of a different approach but it's sort of that I, I look at it as the same um same problem at the end of the day, because it's caused people to die. It's, it's caused people to lose their lives. And what it does is it snuffs out, especially during the age of the pandemic, when we're all from home, working from home, when our protest leaders in Lebanon and Algeria are separated from their colleagues, they're not allowed to gather in public. So everything is now virtual. It's easier to pick some of these people off. And this is sort of the thing that we've been scared and, and we've seen happen in sporadic cases where these governments that have the software are able to go after that one journalist that wrote that bad story on the COVID response in Egypt, or that one civil society activist that organized that protest a year ago in downtown Baghdad, this is the kind of stuff we don't want to see become the norm. And that's sort of a new level of engagement the human rights communities had to step up and work on the last several years.
0: Just today, the Department of Justice charged three U.S. nationals of hacking on behalf of the United Arab Emirates. Do you think that the U.S. should completely stop any support for allied intelligence services in cyber? Or do you think we need to find some middle ground because we need them to have the capability to find the bad guys, but they can also use it to find good protesters as well. How do you how do you think about balancing those things, especially when it's human capital and not just the cameras and the systems to do the spying? I don't have a clear answer to that.
2: And it's partially because my expertise on this particular issue is like, non-existent, right? I just know the technology exists. I know how it's being used to track people. And my focus is on making sure we don't have our civil society activists targeted by this technology. And the easiest way to do that is to make sure, and this is, is, again, very easy, make sure that the US government and then also the public, the American public, knows that if there is a company that is US-based selling this to Saudi Arabia, people need to know what will result if the Saudis get their hands on this kind of technology, okay? And I think as a baseline, as long as people know that, it actually begins to fix the problem. The second aspect is making sure there's some sort of regulation, okay, where there aren't national security objectives of the United States compromised because the Saudis have it out for somebody in an allied NATO country. They've tried targeting people here in the United States and in Norway. And in some of the Nordic countries where there are Saudi dissidents that are living, I mean, that is a big deal. And they're using this technology to do that. When you look at it that way, it becomes a little bit easier for the U.S. to find a hook, the U.S. government to find a hook and say, wait a second, this is clearly abuse. This is actually undermining all kinds of efforts, not just between us and Saudi Arabia, but between us and our NATO allies. This has to stop, right? And I think that's where we're trying to kind of move the conversation. You know, nobody wants... To see the U.S. be unable to use its own technological prowess, so to speak, to track terrorists and do all this other stuff that we do. I think it's a separate issue from the particular sale of this kind of software that these foreign governments are specifically buying, not for terrorists, but to snuff out civil society and the presence of civil society within their own borders, calling for all of the things I've talked about this evening with both of you. Um, that's really where the issue is.
1: I think what's interesting is that, and it's sort of distinct from previous, I don't know, generations of, of technology in the is that Silicon Valley has this ethos of like, move fast and break things, right? And so I think a lot of the uses that we're describing or referencing by totalitarian or authoritarian regimes are uses that we're, perhaps not anticipated, which is different than, you know, uh, selling arms in which, you know, the use is is very clear and, and totally anticipated. And so it sort of both allows the creators some plausible deniability that makes it, I think, in some ways even harder to hold anybody accountable for the bad outcomes that may occur. So I don't know. I think this is just an interesting topic. Yeah,
2: it is. I it really it really is, and I mean, I think we're just beginning to sort of get get a handle of how maybe widespread some of this behavior is among some of these foreign governments. I think it's just sort of the tip of the iceberg, really.
0: Yeah, I mean, from my perspective, this kind of goes back to the conversation we were having with Paul Massaro earlier about corruption and how the U.S. needs to leverage its financial and judicial strength to lead some countries into a place where they're less corrupt. And I think we could probably use that technological arm as well to create systems that support and defend human rights abroad. But before we let you go, let's circle back to the beginning of this conversation where you said that you got into this work so that you can make sure that Lebanon doesn't see the same catastrophe that it did in the the 80s and 90s unfortunately we are back in a place where beirut is reeling from a explosion that happened i believe last year as well as hundreds of thousands of syrian refugees and a complete financial collapse and fuel shortage. Can you sort of lay the groundwork? What's happening and what should the U.S. be doing to support the Lebanese people? You know, you
2: had this, this, it has been a year ago, as of last month, you had this sort of catastrophic explosion at the port of Beirut, which all of us saw the various horrific video clips that were just, I mean, mind-boggling. You had this occur during a pandemic during a time when the country which is the size of Connecticut was hosting or is hosting 1.5 million Syrian refugees okay which is the equivalent of like all of Canada moving to the United States and maybe even a couple more countries you've got an additional quarter million to a half a million Palestinian refugees and their and their generations of families that have been living in Lebanon after the creation of Israel and the first Arab-Israeli conflict and the second Arab-Israeli conflict. So, you know, generations of those Palestinians living there. So, you know, do the math here. You've got 4.5 million Lebanese, you've got 1.5 million Syrians, about half a million Palestinians. This tiny country with all of this stuff was also undergoing an uprising, as I've talked about earlier. that started in 2019 against the corrupt, extremely corrupt ruling class. And I say ruling class because a lot of the former warlords from the civil war days that signed this agreement called the taif accord uh in 1991 i think or end of 1990 and uh essentially it ended the civil war and they all agreed to put down their weapons except for hezbollah obviously and you know the the country stopped fighting itself and you know eventually the syrians withdrew and the israelis withdrew and you have sort of lebanon that we have today where the class became more and more the ruling class became more and more corrupt Siphoned off more and more state funds, drove the country into deeper and deeper debt and mismanagement, and it all just came to a head once the citizenry reacted to his proposed WhatsApp tax. um, The people use, you know, WhatsApp in Lebanon all the time because the regular cell phone bills are outrageous as as the cost of a lot of things in the country. So anyway, it sparked this whole protest movement that was, I mean, really huge protests really, really big protests. We're talking almost, I think one of the marches had almost a million people out of a country, the population of about 5 million, right? I mean, that is remarkable. And I was watching in awe, honestly. It's like after all that went wrong with the Arab Spring and all of these other countries to see millions of Algerians and millions of Iraqis and Lebanese and others come out again in the fall of 2019 demanding the same sort of changes that you saw, it really makes me wonder what would have happened had we not had the pandemic. It really does. Like, I mean, will we, will, there will be books written on this very topic. That's for a separate podcast. So anyway, so we have Lebanon, and you have this port explosion, and it just sent the economy, which is already collapsing, into a death spiral. You keep thinking it hits rock bottom until it hits another bottom. And you've got over, I think now 80% of the country is plunged into poverty. And this is actually a relatively wealthy citizenry that has been so heavily affected. I mean, by by global standards, like the Lebanese citizenries had a relatively decent middle class in the country. There was some state support for some of the more disadvantaged communities in the country. All of that has completely been evaporated within within a year and a half. The World Bank has called it one of the worst economic crises in history, in human history after the Spanish Depression, during the Spanish Civil War, and I think after another country's depression during the 1920s. So we are talking about a very serious situation in Lebanon. Um, It's remarkable the country didn't devolve into a bloodbath. Um, I think it's in part because everybody was affected by this. It wasn't just one religion or one group. It was everybody, all Lebanese, and all of the ruling class, regardless of religious affiliation, because Lebanon has a sectarian breakdown of how the government functions: Christian president, Sunni prime minister, Shia speaker of parliament. They were all responsible, and so it was just sort of like, if if everybody is, if everybody sucks, how do you fix it? Right? It's essentially the, the, the this horrible conundrum Lebanese found themselves in. So now we have a government that got formed after a year or so since the Beirut port blast when the last government resigned, which was I think the third one they had in about two years. And it's unfortunately roughly the same sort of corrupt mix of people, but it got so bad in Lebanon that something had to give. And it was either going to be violence, or it was going to be a government that would implement some of the reforms that the IMF is asking for, the World Bank is asking for, the US and France are asking for, in order for aid to free up, to stabilize the country. So right now, we have a government in Lebanon. We don't know what's going to happen next. We do know that reforms are being rolled out. But the ultimate problem still exists, right? And this gets back to the whole point of this this evening's conversation. What does the United States want at this point? They didn't want a violent confrontation in Lebanon, another failed state in the region. I think that's a good thing. Nobody wants that. But then is at the expense of one down the road because of this new government, and is it going to be as corrupt as the other ones? Or has there been some sort of agreement, because you have elections in two years in Lebanon, where there will be some kind of free and fair monitor elections in Lebanon, which will be a good thing, and maybe the change the Lebanese are seeking that will come in 2022? You know, we don't know. Um, But that's essentially what's happened over the last um, year and a half. And I'll say one more thing on this, too. We have a huge office in Beirut. Amnesty's nerve center for the region. We have an office in Tunis, and we have an office in Beirut. We we got kicked out of most of the other countries in the region. We can't operate safely in most of the other countries. So you've got you know Human Rights Watch it as an office in Beirut. You've got mm-hmm. CNN and BBC, and you have all of the media companies that are anchored there for the region because it's relatively safe for them to operate out of that country. If something goes wrong in Lebanon, I fear For all of the refugees, I fear for the Lebanese, I feel for civil society, for the whole region, for the Egyptian activists that have fled there over the years, for the Syrian activists, for the Iraqi activists, for the Kurdish activists, for the Palestinian activists, all of the people that have made Beirut their little free place to hang out and try to change their countries from afar, but not too far. Uh, I worry about what effect that will have on the rest of the region. And I don't think people really comprehend that. In this country. And that's something that we really should keep an eye out for over the next couple of months and next couple of years. What will happen if something happens to Lebanon? And how do we prevent that from happening?
1: Are we already seeing NGOs and companies pull out, like move their headquarters out of Beirut?
2: I haven't seen that in any sort of large scale yet. That's a good question. I'm surprised we haven't seen that. I mean, maybe people really sort of thought it's better to be in a place where you won't be thrown in jail indefinitely and be without electricity indefinitely. And that was sort of the trade off for some of the folks in order to stay in the region and be with the people. You know, I think that's how a lot of folks have viewed it. Um, I do think there are some media bureaus that have like transferred a lot of their work to like Cyprus or nearby. But I don't know. I mean, again, there's not too many other options to stay in the region and be able to do your job without interference, right? So I think that's sort of the question everybody's asking. How much longer can they tolerate these conditions there? Um, I think that's really where, what the question people are starting to ask now. So,
0: Well, it's that time of the show where we talk about something political or cultural that we're following. I'll go first this week. I'm following BTS at the United Nations. The K-pop group was appointed as the Special Presidential Envoy for Future Generations and Culture for South Korea, and they're expected to attend a meeting on the UN Sustainable Development Goals. I'm not a big K-pop fan, but I am a big multilateralism fan. I hope that their presence brings attention to the important work of the United Nations and that more public attention will drive the United States to step up and lead in an organization that is in dire need of reform. Zoe, what are you following this week?
1: I've been following the private sector space race that's been playing out very publicly in the last couple months. Blue Origin, Virgin Galactic, SpaceX, et cetera. And the latest development on that front uh, is a journey on a SpaceX rocket by a crew of four people called Inspiration4, which is going to be orbiting the planet for several days at an altitude that's significantly higher than the International Space Station. Historically, of course, space travel was really the domain of our federal government and our work in defense and science. and You know, I continue to find the commercialization of space, the fact that the private sector is driving the majority of our space activities to be a pretty major development. And on the one hand, I think, you know, perhaps the private sector is making up for underinvestment on the government's part, and maybe that's a good thing. But I think the implications are, are quite complex, and I'll be curious to see how it evolves.
0: Philippe, what are you following this week? Well, you know, I
2: think this is this is sort of less- like political, maybe maybe more cultural for some people, but uh, I have family in New Orleans and Houston, and we've just been monitoring what's now become this sort of year I mean, we've always had hurricane season growing up, but the frequency of you know these things making landfall and striking these areas has really dramatically risen, and you know, I've started hearing of people not want to come back to their homes after the latest round of storms hitting rural Louisiana. I mean, not so much in New Orleans, but in other areas outside of Louisiana. And then even last night there was a there was a smaller hurricane that hit Texas and went right over Houston um, and is now raining all over Louisiana. But it's kind of one of these things where it's like this yearly occurrence and you're so used to it, but it keeps getting worse and worse. And now you're starting to actually hear people just sort of give up on it, which is actually pretty remarkable. And it made me think about how Twenty or 30 years from now we'll look at this part of the country, which is actually quite culturally rich. You've got an incredible history of blues that, is, that originated in, along the Mississippi Delta and like those whole communities are being displaced because of the you know, human-induced climate change and, the, and the, the increasing severity of these storms and you know it just it's had my mind churning as to like what the response really needs to be? Is this like a Netherlands style, like wall that holds the Gulf of Mexico back that they're kind of talking about doing in some cities like New Orleans, but like, can you just do that for an entire coastline? You can't, right? So then what do you do with all the people that are living there? So that's my non-Middle East stuff that I've been thinking about.
0: With that, thanks for joining us. Next in Foreign Policy is produced in cooperation with Foreign Policy for America's Next Gen Initiative. Please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so that more people can find our show. You can follow me online at Grant Haver, follow Zoe at Z. Weinberg, and Philippe at P.T. Nassif. If you're a foreign policy expert under 40 and want to be featured on the show, please be sure to follow the link in the show notes. This week's podcast is brought to you by Celebrity Vaccine Advice only providing you the most accurate knowledge from our cousin's friend. Join us in two weeks to hear more about what's next in foreign policy.